You're listening to a conversation that's part of the Centre for Future Nature's series of stories on commoning and enclosure. My name is Anushka and these conversations invite people to share their experiences, ideas and knowledge on commoning, including the already existing practices and relations that confront structures and systems of enclosure. So today we're joined by Almendra Kremaschi, who has worked over the past 10 years on topics related to sustainability, family farming and participatory methodologies for the co-production of knowledge and innovations. She is trained as an agronomist from the National University of La Plata in Argentina and is currently a PhD candidate from the same university. She is the founder of BioLeft, an interdisciplinary team of researchers which has devised an open source system for seeds. BioLeft focuses on access to and use of seeds and links local and scientific knowledge to enhance the role of farmers in seed conservation and breeding. In this way, it generates a greater availability of biodiverse and resilient seeds considered as a commons. Armendo was in a lively cafe when we recorded this conversation, so hopefully the noises you hear will still allow you to understand what Armendo and I are saying. So hi, Armendo, can you introduce us to your work around seeds and how you got interested in them? and the importance of valuing seeds as a commons. Okay, yeah, right. Well, I started interested in seeds um, when I was doing my degree studies. Um, at that time, there were many campaigns against Monsanto presence here in Argentina, where I am based. And um, I was interested, but I didn't know um, a lot about that. Later, there was um, uh, a seed fair, a national seed fair near my town. And I participated of a task that was registering all the seeds, all the biodiversity that farmers were exchanging. Um, it was a great work together with many other people. And there I discovered two things that I think are foundational for my work. One of them is the big diversity that we have here, and, and I imagine elsewhere too, um, and all the work that farmers in communities have done during generations to keep them an improvement but also the lack of knowledge, or at least systematized knowledge about that. And they need to um, find a way to protect, but also to share that, that knowledge. Like 10 years later, I met Annabel Marin and Patrick Van Swanenberg. They had worked a lot about seeds from the social sciences perspectives, yeah, innovation studies and economics. And there I learned the, the, the roots of the problems that uh, Monsanto struggles had uh, in, in the time I was a student and also why this diversity that I noticed in the, in the field wasn't acknowledged. And uh, it had to do with the, the advancement of intellectual property rights over living material and the concentration of seed markets. So they, they taught me or, or they shared with me the approach of seeds as commons and I found it really interesting because it was utopian but really realistic at the same time because on the one hand it allows us thinking of biodiversity as something that actually belongs to all of us that we can grow we can research and build community uh, through the exchange of these seeds but it also entails a need for being accountable over them that's a really great introduction to your work and and your interest thank you and seeds are obviously the basis of growing food um, and therefore uh, foundational for human life. But they're increasingly being controlled and appropriated by powerful actors. Um, and you mentioned already about knowledge and appropriation through certain activities. But I wondered if we can talk a bit about how the role of appropriation 
a particularly dangerous form of appropriation um, is through patents um, because they can be used to restrict all forms of access to seeds and are increasingly due to motivations of economic profit, efficiency gains and endless growth. So the struggle to create a more equitable and desirable food system needs to start with seed and seed sovereignty. And so the first question I have for you is, can you discuss the idea of seed sovereignty and why is it important in Argentina? Yes, sure. Well, agriculture is center for Argentina economically and uh, culturally. Economically, because we rely on the foreign exchange that it brings us. We have a huge external debt and the agriculture is um, a resource of um, dollars and, uh, and also tax revenues that are used for equality politics and um, inclusion politics um, and public policies. But it also determines us or inf our influences our identity as a country because we have rural origins. The communities that were here before the colony and the, after that were mainly rural workers and, and farmers. So at least uh, until the Green Revolution, right? But it, it influences our identity. So agriculture is central for Argentina and seeds are central for agriculture. They determine what kind of practices you are going to do. They are a source of knowledge, but also of social bonding. And um, they are central for a sustainable agriculture. So in the last decades, Argentina and also globally are witnessing the growing appropriation of biocultural diversity, both through increasing strict intellectual property regulations as patents, as you said, as well as practices of biopiracy and epistemicide. So <clears throat> farmers who try to transition to more sustainable ways of agriculture find struggles to find seeds adapted to their needs. Some of them find themselves locked into high input production systems and others try to breed their own seeds or buy them from their neighbors. But the thing is that these farmers have the risk of being criminalized because heterogeneous seeds that are the seeds that they grow and, and produce are not recognized by the national seed catalogs and therefore they cannot be traded or offered. So they end up working and uh, producing in an informal market and they are not only uh, invisibilized, but they are threatened by the laws, by the application of the laws. This on one hand, and on the other hand, that doesn't happen much in Argentina because we cannot patent seeds in this country. Patents are allowed in, in Japan and in the US mainly, but not in Argentina. The thing is that sometimes seeds get polluted with GMO traits that come from other seeds. A couple of months ago, I watched a film that I highly recommend, that is the, the story of Percy Schmeiser, that is um, a farmer that was demanded by Monsanto. And, uh, well, I don't want to spoil the movie, but the, the, the end is quite sad, as you can imagine. But also, it, it allows us to understand how deep the roots of this system can dig. He had grown his seeds for decades, selecting them, trying them as a family practice. And then at the end, he has to give all his seeds to Monsanto just because his canola got polluted. I mean, it's, it's no wonder then, you know, Vandana Shiva calls it bioimperialism. Absolutely. So they are denied on the one hand and criminalized. Um, on the other. So seed sovereignty is associated in my perspective 
to the possibility of freely decide what to produce, how to produce, and what to do with the results of your production without fear of criminalization or biopiracy. Interesting you said about patenting of seeds is, is not legal in Argentina. Yeah, what it is legal in Argentina is patenting the procedures of introducing um, a trait, a GMO trait. And uh, although now with, with the digitalization of, um, uh, of biological material and this uh, gene sequencing, information can be separated from their, the, the physical object. In the, in the practice and in, in the daily work of farmers, you cannot separate the procedure of introducing a gene to the whole seed. Um, in BioLeft, there's a farmer that is an organic farmer, and uh, he's trying to depollute his uh, maize seeds, and uh, this is the fourth year that his seeds get polluted because his neighbors produce with uh, GMOs. So. Um, at the end of the day, if the seed has a patent on the on the procedure of introducing a gene se a gene sequence, it's the same. It, it ends up restricting the flow of, of uh, seeds anyway. Okay, that's really interesting. That's really good to to clarify that. So then this leads on to the second question then. You've, you've already talked about it without necessarily using the term enclosure yet, but what's the role of knowledge in the struggle for seed autonomy then? All of what you've, already, you've said about procedures of developing a seed, uh, certain traits that are desired, how the term enclosure might be helpful to think about how knowledge is treated in what is a dominantly corporate controlled seed system. So, in the previous question, um, I talked about how farmers themselves take the task of breeding their own seeds adapted to their needs. So, the enclosure of seeds and knowledge is related to the lack of diverse seeds. I like the idea of enclosure because it goes beyond the commodification that implies a switch in the perception of seeds from a common heritage of humanity to, to something produced to be sold. The closure goes farther because it goes to the appropriation of the knowledge that is embedded in the seeds. It implies two dimensions, um, a more visible dimension, a, a tangible di dimension in the privatization of the lands, seeds, workers, um, and a more invisible, uh, intangible dimension crucial to understanding the present regime that is the appropriation of, of the knowledge. In the first enclosure movement that consisted in the privatization of common lands by the British Parliament, European scientists used the knowledge of farmers to learn from their methods and techniques in order to produce cereals and other horticultural seeds and those ornamental seeds to serve the new landowners. The expansion of intellectual property rights and seed registers is seen as the second enclosure movement, because in that context, the plant breeding activity was appropriated by the professional plant breeding system and actors that are part of it assume themselves as holders of the right. So these same actors qualified farmers as incapable of scientific improvement and redefine the daily practice of farmers as a privilege. This is what the law says. So here the appropriation expands from land 
towards other tangible commons as seeds, but it also moves one step forward in the knowledge appropriation. Companies, they do not only use, but also privatize the farmer's knowledge through patenting seeds and uh, other biodiversity materials. So patents imply that companies are now the owners of the knowledge and they own them, their progeny, and the derivative products. So the point here is that farmers do not own the seeds. Even the ones they buy, they do not own them. They are licenses of them, of them. They are users. They can use them, but they are not owners. And this is the, the main point. So one of the results of this is that research and development is constrained by the difficulties in accessing valuable genetic material because they are usually patented. And the regulatory costs of accessing them is higher than the cost itself of the whole breeding program. Public sector breeders are sometimes conditioned to work on certain varieties or even purposes because companies usually financially support their breeding programs. Knowledge production is oriented towards developing genetically uniform seeds with high performance and also high demand of inputs. Meanwhile, farmers' knowledge is not only denied but constantly threatened. Farmers' sanctioned practices are frequently criminalized and they are fined for violating intellectual property regulations that they barely know they exist. So, as the first enclosure did, the second enclosure disrupts traditional social relationships, disempowers farmers and leads to local knowledge loss. Finally, this all results in threats to food sovereignty since consumers have fewer possibilities of choosing their food. Yeah, that's really, really helpful to think about the ways that enclosure has manifested in the past, but also helps think about how the legacies of those different interventions are still very much normalised. Yeah, and the reinvention of these enclosure strategies. Yeah, exactly. So then I guess in terms of thinking about the kind of counter to enclosure, we might think about commoning or re-commoning, I suppose, because as you mentioned before, uh, right up, you know, as far back as sort of before the first colonizers set foot on the land that's now um, called Argentina. I guess there's there's something to be said about knowledge, um, revitalizing perhaps knowledge, some call it sort of traditional econo- ecological knowledge, or um, I'm sure you have other terms for it. But to, yeah, I like situated yeah, knowledge. Situated knowledge, yeah, exactly. Maybe if you'd like to take this time to talk a little bit about situated knowledge, how specifically situated knowledge about seeds is perhaps helping to think and also enact a more commons approach to farming in Argentina as opposed to following these these harmful legacies that have been put in place around privatization of knowledge. Yeah, well, there are many initiatives, many, many strategies also. Um, I can talk about one of them, that is um, BioLeft. BioLeft is um, is self-defined as an ongoing community lab that seeks to co-design and experiment with social and technological innovations to open new pathways to more sustainable seed systems. It is one of the many initiatives that that exist. 
Um, I am part of BioLeft and uh, we define ourselves as a laboratory because we explore new ideas and network configurations to create new situated knowledge, uh, new ways of producing, sharing and protecting it. Nowadays, we are experimenting with participatory breeding, particularly in tomatoes and maize. Um, farmer breeders, public sector breeders, extension workers and uh, social scientists. Um, we work together to develop seeds that are resilient and they have a high nutritional quality and also high yields. We use participatory techniques and also our tools to envision the seeds we want. Argentina is uh, geographically, it's a really big country, so all together with farmers, breeders, software developers, we have developed a web platform that is called the BioLeft platform, where we collect, share and process the information. So in real time, we are connected, although we are far away one from each other. So in this way is that we try to contribute to the creation of situated knowledge. We have a proactive strategy instead of a resistance strategy. And I think this is one of the points that differentiates us from other um, initiatives. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. Also, I heard you talking before about some of the arts-based methodologies that you've used at BioLeft. And one of the outputs that you made with your farmer collaborators was on super maize. Um, would you like to share with us a bit about that? Yeah, I, I tell you about the super maize a little bit. It's a really nice um, story because there was um, we were in a workshop with um, uh, breeders from the public sector that one of the farmers drew um, a, a maize that had many branches. I don't know how to say in English, makoshaje is, is the word. And the, the breeder said, but this is what I have negatively selected all my life. I have killed all these plants because I thought that this is what we don't want because the plant spends energy developing the branches. So it has less energy from the, for the, the, the maize itself from the, the product. Um, but the farmer said that in his region, there was a lack of water and there were droughts frequently. And this way, the, the maize could create the shadow over the ground, so the water would stay longer and the, the, the management of the water would be more efficient. So for him and for all of us, it was a great aha moment because there were criteria that we didn't imagine. So it, that, that was situated knowledge creation. Yeah, and the way in which these other methodologies, you know, making space for those to kind of draw out this situated knowledge, which doesn't necessarily conform or it's not well translated into the conventional spaces of knowledge production or the, I guess in many ways, imperialist bases where knowledge is produced, which is in academic institutions where some of these knowledges are overlooked or devalued or not thought about. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. So... I wanted to move on to talk about the concept of Cheche, which is important to your work, which is um, a concept developed by the Bolivian Aymara scholar, Silvia Rivera Cusicanchi. Um, my understanding of this term is that it refers to 
the parallel coexistence of multiple cultural realities uh, and points to a decolonial approach to eco-social issues. If you could uh, explore your understanding of this term and how this concept and its origins relate to challenging the corporate capture of seeds in Argentina. Well, it's an idea that I'm just starting to explore from my readings of Silvia Rivera Cusicanqui. Um, you are right in your understanding. She defines it as a juxtaposed, sorry, juxtaposed holes and hard fragments interweaving in multiple ways, but never fully melting or dissolving completely. So although she uses this idea to characterize the Bolivian identities, um, contrasting with mestizaje um, um, ideas that um, try to show the, the, the melting or, or the, um, a certain kind of homogeneity in, um, as a result of the cross or peoples, I resonated with her critique of the binary perspectives, the, the white against the black, the European against the indigenous, and, the, and, and this virtual need of consensus that some academics and, and activists identify as necessary for the exercise of democracy in general. I, I like the idea of Chehe in three aspects. The juxtaposed idea, the anti-colonial and the metaphorical aspects of this idea. I will develop this uh, now. Um, Rivera Cusicanqui mentions in an interview how the Europeans uh, have appropriated the knowledge and they have turned it hard to communicate and uh, I would say hard to reproduce. So I, I modestly think something similar happens with seeds where knowledge is being closed but also sterilized, cutting short its reproductive capacity. Modern biotechnology, and I say modern because uh, what farmers did all the across all the history is also a bio and, and a technology. But modern biotechnology has developed a trait that sterilizes seeds after they have it, harvest, preventing their multiplication and saving by farmers. The development of the terminator trait is a metaphor for what patents do to knowledge. This terminator trait finally wasn't um, introduced in, in the market, but it, it was created and uh, communicated as a success of the industry. <clears throat> so the introduction of this metaphor um, produces is that it doesn't commodify or trade it, but they restrict their use. Um, Farmers' knowledge stigmatization as something traditional and hence associated with the past, deprived to present or future potential or usefulness, also represents epistemic sterilization practice. The, the, the ideas that were spread in the context of the Green Revolution, talking about how a farmer's knowledge was an impediment for the expansion and modernization of agriculture is a way of sterilizing the, the farmer's knowledge. So in this context, my understanding, and uh, I say my understanding because I want to be accountable for what I say, not, not, I don't know what I put <laughs> my, um, uh, my words on Sylvia's uh, mouth, uh, is that the notion of decoloniality might be tricky here because reproducing a lineal temporality in which the reversion is presented as 
the only alternative to colonial dynamics. So here, the weaving of situated epistemologies could be powerful. Yeah, thank you for that. That's some words that aren't just uh, linguistical analogies, but actually quite tangible ones with sterilization of knowledge and what patents do to knowledge and the ideologies behind those processes. Yeah, and this lock-in that, that says that what we can only do is or, or have faith and, and trust in technology or, or the technology that is mainstream or go back to traditional ways of producing, which had their potential. They, they also had their contradictions, but most importantly, they are not feasible now because we are in different contexts. And uh, I think that this is something that obstructs the possibility of thinking of new forms, maybe recuperating the, value, the, the values and the, um, learning from them, having them in front of us, but building something new that is feasible yeah. in the material okay. conditions okay. of production and the, um, agriculture that we have now. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of putting the culture in agriculture, actually. Um, so I guess then in relation to what you've just said already, the approaches or methodologies that BioLeft uses to involve people in spaces of creativity and collaboration to change the seed system. You've mentioned art. If you could talk a little bit more about the value of art, how you have navigated that as a method uh, within within the spaces, the agricultural spaces that you find yourself in and how that's received. You know, Has there been any discomfort or unfamiliarity amongst um, the farmers you've been working with communicate? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that the main point here is that um, we have um, explored these techniques with farmers that who we have been working with for the last eight years, I could say. So there was, there is a trust uh, um, uh, bonding between us that um, creates uh, and that guarantees a, a safe space for experimentation and creation. And they know that as they experiment with seeds, some of us, uh, especially the, the social sciences team, the part of the team, we experiment with, with methods and with governance forms and we try to trigger reflection. And um, so we do that with a lot of respect and uh, building on the work of colleagues as um, Lakshmi, uh, Charlie in Mexico and the, the UNAM team, but um, also the, the work of um, T-learning team. Um, and uh, we, we, we try to do it really respectfully. Um, one of the techniques we used was this, the, the idea of a super maze um, that was worked really, really well. And the other uh, was uh, working with avatars. That is something that uh, Lakshmi uh, works with to, to recognize, but also to um, strategically map the capacities of the group. So all of us, we went to a farm and uh, we had to draw our avatar and uh, saying the, the powers that we have. And it was really, really a nice experience. And then something that we use really fr frequently is the dragon dreaming um, technique. 
in which we try to plan the objectives, the activities, the responsibilities of, um, of the project every year. And um, we use really yeah, artistic uh, approaches there, creative uh, approaches. And um, lastly, we um, used art to communicate our work because the ideas that BioLeft works with, the, the open source, is something quite abstract, you know, and unless you are a software developer and you know Linux or unless you are an academic reading about these things, it's quite difficult to picture. So communication is really important, uh, but it's really hard um, to So um, we created a video um, an animation, an animated video uh, explaining the, the struggle of seeds and BioLeft uh, work. And it has many views and it's also used in some educational contexts. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I'll include a link to that animated video you mentioned uh, when this is uploaded to the Future Nature's website. So I'm thinking a lot about agroecology as a concept. I mean, it has its limitations and it's, it's a term which going back to what we were talking about earlier with situated knowledge is that perhaps there's more locally relevant terminologies that can be used instead of agroecology but it helps us to challenge dominant colonial ways of thinking about the role of kinship in food production um, and I've heard you speak before about kinship um, within agriculture and I wondered if maybe you'd like to talk about the kinds of nature culture relations that are needed to challenge the coloniality of food systems in Argentina. I like the idea of kinship, which I stole um, from Donna Haraway, and uh, I try to reflect on that, um, using that idea on the context uh, of my work. Um, something really funny was that when I was writing my notes for this um, talk, I write kindship. I wrote kindship. And today I was reading and I said, well, they are really related um, too. So... <clears throat> There, there's a, a need for a transition from objectification to kinship. The, the dominant agricultural paradigm is based on different forms of objectification. The objectification of nature, culture, women, seeds, workers, etc. The, the implications of this objectification are multiple and they are related to the possibility of isolating and exploding. In the idea of object, there is an implicit idea of boundaries, of limits. I don't know, I have this um, mobile phone and uh, I know that these are the edges of the phone and I can isolate it from the context of this, what we can call workspace. So when you isolate something, you can easily commercialize it, you can easily um, use it, uh, you can use it easily explode it without considering the context of it. In the case of a phone, it's something really trivial, but in the case of a seed, you can think of it as a technology, as, an, as a mere input, without considering that it's the result of generations of collective work. And that is the first um, um, tie, the, the first part of the food chain. And that is a reservoir of knowledge, and it is also a tool for communication, for example, in, in seeds exchange. The seeds are fundamental for the connection of uh, women from different communities. So when you isolate 
the, the idea of seed from its context. You can usually think of it as a technology and something that you can sell, I don't know, patent or whatever. The idea of kinship, what I think it, it allows, is moving away from the object to the relationship. And, and that leads to a systemic perspective, because you know that when you affect this uh, phone, you're affecting the whole system. And, and as you're part of the whole system, you're affecting yourself, because if you break it, you cannot communicate it or use it for your I don't know, work, but also for your social relationships and whatever. And the same happens with seeds and uh, with our ecology. Our ecology allows us to think of a systemic perspective in which if something has not uh, the maximum yield, it can, but it gives you stability along this, the, the, the agriculture cycles, you will be safer than if you think of, and if you, if you focus on the yields of one crop and, and, and you uh, relinquish the, the sustainability of the whole system just to uh, obtain the most of one um, crop. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, really important way of thinking about how to conceptualize the interlinkages between what I guess in, in capitalism is as an object to be, as you said, exploited. And I mean, phones is a really good example, but, you know, how to delimit nature um, and compartmentalize it um, in order to exploit it. But yeah, kinship invites us to start thinking about the fluidity between these things that have historically been bordered and yeah start to find connections yeah um i i watched avatar last uh, week um i really i didn't really like the second um, um movie but the first one i i really did and uh, there's um, a whole part of the movie in which they notice building on on Ursula Le Guin's um, ideas, they um, they notice how the, the the forest or the whole nature um, reacted uh, systemically. Um, beyond the connections that that you can see, that there is a scientist that start noticing that the whole communication system that was across uh, nature. And uh, I think that this is something that really happens. I mean, if you look at the, the development of uh, mushrooms and uh, mycorrhytic relationships, yeah, there is a whole uh, communication system that we are breaking, but it exists. Yeah, for sure. And uh, a lot of plants and trees even, can they release uh, certain chemicals when they're under attack by certain pests so there's communication systems that are going on all around us that just because we can't see them um yeah doesn't mean that they are any less of value so i wondered then if we can talk about um the idea of food biodiversity being quote uninteresting which is something that i've heard you say in a talk before and uninteresting to the neoliberal capitalist globalized food system. So I just wondered if you could explain, you know, this phrasing of sort of uninteresting, how it's helpful to kind of think about it in terms of seed diversity, and then maybe talk a little bit about BioLeft's catalogue of seeds and, and how this, this catalogue might help to validate these so-called uninteresting seeds. 
Sure. Well, I, I think that what I said um, has to do with the incorporation of industrial uh, logic of production to agriculture, or at least the, the attempts of it. It is a matter of scale, like the bigger the scale, the cheaper the production, the bigger the profit, uh, the more homogeneous something is, the, the easier to produce and uh, harvest it. And uh, in, in the context of the Green Revolution, the um, international agricultural research centers, they um, specialized in a few crops to be more efficient in their research. So they, they concentrated in the crops that were more uh, profitable and that they have biggest markets, while other crops that maybe were key for seeds, for food sovereignty, or because they had uh, nutritional characteristics, or because they were adapted to a certain region, or because they were um, connected to the culture of a central community, were not interesting uh, anymore. So um, Annabel Marin has a lot of work of this, on this, but the creation of seed markets le led to the creation of this institutionality to regulate them. And uh, they created some standards to categorize seeds to guarantee their, what they called their quality. Um, in that context of the institutional uh, structure of the seed markets, um, seeds that are uh, we call them we call them niche seeds because they can be agroecology or because they can be I don't know uh, organic seeds uh, seeds that are necessary for some region they do not have any institutionality as associated with them so they are not recognized in the official catalogs they cannot be marketed and of course there isn't any kind of support for researching these, um, these kind of seeds. BioLeft works on two fronts to face this challenge. On the one hand, we have created a collaborative seed catalog, and on the other, we are developing research and development on seeds ourselves through participatory breeding. Regarding the catalog, the idea was to connect farmers who save or produce these niche seeds to those who need them in order to visibilize them and to support niche agricultures as our ecology. Um, we seek to protect these seeds by showing that they are something that already exists and that cannot be patented. So the catalog is also a way of empowering uh, and collective action since it was co-produced by farmers, breeders, extension workers, scientists and software developers. So we not only seek to Diver make diversity visible, but also to increase it through participatory breeding, as I explained before. Yeah, that's really useful. And is this catalog open? Sort of, who's able to access the catalog? The catalog is absolutely open. You can access to it through the BioLeft webpage. And although, if you can dig deeper into the knowledge, you have to create a user. And why is that? Because Differently from the commoning, we see that open access uh, seeds in this context only um, shows the lack of a protection. And in, in, the, in the absolute lack of a protection, anybody, and when I say anybody, I say big companies too, can appropriate it because it's something that belongs to nobody. Instead, the idea of commoning shows something that belongs to a big group of people. 
and therefore cannot be appropriated because they, they have owners. So this is our um, idea and this is why to access to certain knowledge that is sensitive, you must uh, create a user. Mm -hmm. I think that really speaks to the kinds of social relations that are involved in governing the seed commons specifically and it makes me think of a, a research article that was published recently in the International Journal of the Commons on diverse seeds and shared practices and actually in that paper they identified four core criteria that characterize diverse seed commons arrangements um, at the local and regional scales and they mentioned collective responsibility, protection from private enclosure like what you were just describing, uh, collective polycentric management and sh sharing of formal and practical knowledge. And so I think this paper is really, it was really helpful to kind of conceptualise those kinds of practical arrangements and what they look like. I guess sort of linked to that is also thinking about the role of the state um, in all of this. And we talked a lot about corporate and private interests, but considering the state as an actor that affects the governance of a resource as a commons, in this case seeds, and, you know, farmers are obviously largely affected by pressures for markets and national food systems. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about or explain the relationship between the state and the market in Argentina and the obstacles that these might have for the seed sovereignty movement. Well, first, I have to say that the state itself is a Cheche institution. It's not something homogeneous and uh, with consensus, um, there are contested visions there and different relations to the market. I think that in Argentina, there, we can identify two main visions that Annabel Marin and Patrick Van Swanenberg have um, shared in a paper about uh, seeking unconventional alliances that I can share with you too. One of them is related to the role that agriculture has for the local economy and the dependence we have on commodity exports. Um, there's a part of the state that has historically supported the mainstream agriculture system because they think that it is strategic for the, for the country. Under this vision, the government allowed the entrance of GMO Soviet in 1996 and based on studies by Monsanto itself. So they developed a strategic plan that sought to expand Soviet monocultures, they allowed the eviction of indigenous communities of their land, I mean, uh, this culminates with the support of Bioseres, that is a company that creates GMO wheat resistant to drought. Although some actors recognize the challenges that this has for, for food sovereignty, they rely on what Haraway calls the technofix. This is a faith that technology will help us overcome all the consequences of the current system. Other part of the state, linked to family farming and social development institutions, are highly concerned about this and they seek to support family farmers and indigenous communities using programs of seed distribution, technical assistance and research on agroecology. However, these initiatives are always threatened by the changes of the government and they, so far, cannot compete with the dominant narrative. Yeah, that's really helpful to to unpack that and also this this work that you mentioned that Anna Marin has co-written around seeking unconventional alliances and um, that would be really helpful to kind of add to our growing <laughs> our growing reference list Vandana Shiva has said in the past when you sell real weapons you control armies 
When you control food, you control society. But when you control seed, you control life on earth. Yeah, absolutely. So this brings us to the end of our conversation with Amanda. It has been very thought-provoking to bring us into the seeds as commons debate and to understand what some of the key obstacles and possibilities are that come with organising people and seeds in a way that values seeds as a commons. Um, and also understanding the particular context of Argentina has given us some insight into the role of technology, power and capital and being a small scale farmer in the majority world. So I invite you to take a look at the resources, videos and other work that Amanda shared with us in this talk um, and which will be posted alongside the interview on the Future Nature's website.